This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode was sponsored by Fair Anita, a shopping website challenging norms within the fashion industry and partnering with 8,000 women in nine countries around the world to create fair trade handmade products from female artisan partners that are paid two to three times minimum wage. Fairanita.com. And by our patrons, Tam Zane Weir, Jessica Smith, Rachel Kay, Janelise Cannon, Jamie Lang, Jill Harrigan, Maria Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantelle Oliver, Caitlin McTaggart, Juniper, Tracy Steeb, Eugene Lewis, Freya Roan, Mickey Renner, and Christina Ark. Thank you so much for being our sponsors. We couldn't do it without you. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. It's episode 100. Can you believe it? I cannot. (laughs) And you've got laryngitis for it. Yeah. Perfect timing. (laughs) That does mean we've each created 50 episodes. Wow. We have featured 100 women. Amazing. And looking back over what we've done over all these years, I realize, like, just scrolling through the feed of 100 episodes that there's such a variety of stories, (laughs) women from all time periods and all around the world. It occurred to me that we've told so many stories that maybe it might even be possible to tell a history of the world through our what's-her-name women. Cool. And so for the 100th episode, I decided to take on the challenge. It was a much bigger challenge than I expected, Mm. of course. (laughs) That's the story of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you took this on instead of me. We're going to play clips. It's going to be a fun flashback episode. (laughs) So today I present to you a history of the world in 100 lost women. Sweet. And working on this episode for the past couple months, the thing that I just keep thinking about is how many women have lived on earth (laughs) how (laughs) many women have come before and lived these incredible lives in every kind of cultural context and every kind of historical period just Mm. so many women left their little mark and when you look at them all in the big picture when you look at the whole chronological saga it is a beautiful story an amazing story and we're the most recent installment so without further ado one of the oldest stories humanity has is one that's so ancient even the ancient greeks didn't really know where it came from or how old it was and it was the story of pythia the oracle at delphi (laughs) in the beginning Zeus released two eagles, one to the east and one to the west, instructing them to find the center of the universe. (laughs) After a long search, they both landed at Delphi, and Zeus dropped a rock to mark the spot. It's still there. You can go and see it. Whoa. (laughs) Was the Pythia, the oracle, over 50 years old? And in the beginning, 
it may have been Gaia that she was channeling, the earth goddess, mm. Gaia, or in Greek, Ea. So nearly all ancient sources mention Delphi at some point. All ancient sources. So it was a really huge deal to ancient people. And not just Greeks. Powerful people, kings and rulers and generals. The people that came from all over the world. Since it seems everyone in the ancient world, with the exception of the Americas, knew about Delphi and traveled there to seek their answers, I'm going to say she was one of the most powerful people of all time. Yeah, definitely. And she was this elderly peasant woman. As far as physical evidence goes, rather than stories, we can know about specific women as far back as the Stone Age, like the Neolithic era. So basically, the Stone Age has two phases. The Old Stone Age, which is the Paleolithic era. That's when we were hunter-gatherers. And that's 95% of human history, from 95%. Then this key moment happens when humans discover farming, and they settle down into towns and cities. Huge moment in time, so huge that we give it a new name. We say, this is the new Stone Age, the Neolithic, (laughs) and it's totally different. People stop wandering vast distances, and instead we, like, we claimed rocks, and we're like, this is my big rock, you know, (laughs) and we stayed there farming. At least that's how the story was being told (laughs) until Professor Janet Montgomery developed new archaeological lab techniques. I know this sounds bonkers now, but when I started doing my PhD, migration as an explanation for change in the archaeological record in 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 the past was was not a permitted uh, explanation you you can't be a farmer unless you live in one place and and you're there to sort of defend your crops you know you can't grow a you can't sow a field of crops and then disappear for six months yeah. you know you would have to be there it used you know in the 19th century migration was the, the cause of every change we saw it was always people moving in and then they in, in the sort of 60s and 70s 80s people moved away from that and said no 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 you know change just happens or or it's passed by word of mouth people aren't moving and bringing the change with them so it, i was again i was fighting against uh, the archaeological paradigm really about what caused change So this did show that the humans, at least, were moving around. And I think one of the things that's come out of the growing use of isotope analysis is how mobile people were in the past. It's just, you know, they weren't, they were much, much more mobile than we think they were. They didn't just stay in one place because they didn't have cars and trains to get around. You know, they were moving a lot. It's quite funny, actually, because the whole idea now of what happened is going back to what archaeologists were proposing in the 19th century. So remember how she pioneered isotope analysis? Teeth. Teeth, yes. Yeah, so cool. (laughs) So cool. So we didn't just plonk down and never move again, but we did build towns and cities. And then because of this increasingly complex trade deals that were going on, like, for example, you raise pigs and I uh, grow wheat and we make a deal Hmm. that I will give you half of my wheat if you give me half of your pigs Hmm. come harvest time. Then come harvest time, of course, you renege on the deal and you take half my wheat, but then you're like, I didn't make any deal about pigs. Wait, what? And I'm left... 
Why that's am exact- I the bad guy? Because <laughs> you're the big sister. Oh, that's, that's true. That's what would happen. All right. <laughs> so because of deals like that and because of people like you. Yeah. Uh, humans had to invent writing because we had to get those deals in writing so that when you try to renege on your pig deal, I can prove that you said you would give me half. You're welcome, humanity. <laughs> yes. And we have the birth of civilization. Dun, da, da. That happens around 3500 BCE in all different parts of the world. So the new forms of writing that we have uh, are cuneiform. That's probably the oldest in Mesopotamia. In China, you've got these oracle bones with the oldest mm. writing on it. Just hints about their civilization, but we have very few finds from that time. Hmm. Uh, the other ancient language is Linear A. And mm-hmm. that is the language of the Minoans. We are still waiting to tell the story of the Minoans because we cannot read their writing. But they may have been a female-dominated civilization. Completely awesome. Cool. Another one of the ancient languages is the Indus script from the Indus Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, can't read it. Mm-hmm. But we have tons of examples of it. Still can't read it. But, oh, when we hack that, that's going to be amazing. <laughs> But one of the cool things we do have from India, even though we can't read their writing yet, is that we have some of their oldest stories in the Upanishad, which is the ancient Hindu text. And Hinduism is one of the world's oldest religions that we can know anything about. Hmm. And I think it shows us a lot about what humans at the birth of civilization were thinking about and, you know, what they believed about who we were and why we were here. Hmm. So it's difficult to to summarize Hinduism, but here are a few of the major threads. Most Hindus share the notion, the the belief in an an inner essence, a spiritual essence that constitutes who we are. This is called the Atma or the Atman. It's the self. It's the inner spiritual essence that is the same in every living being whether it be human or animal or even plant anything that is alive and has the ability to feel pain and joy and struggle for survival shares this spiritual essence which allows it to be conscious the atma that atman is connected to brahman or ultimate reality um the, the sum total of all consciousness in this world, the ground of all our being. Many, many Hindus regard that ultimate reality as a person, as God, and they would give that Brahman, or they would refer to him uh, or, or, or her as a specific deity, like Vishnu or Shiva or Devi. Uh, I, I, I said him or her because Hindus... Uh, have described God as both male and female. And so Hinduism is one of the few traditions, living religions in the world that has maintained and strengthened its ancient practices of goddess worship to the present day. And then Gargi Vachaknavi makes her brilliant appearance. We do have to read between the lines to catch the whole of the story. Do you remember Gargi? Yeah, she, she wins a Facebook fight. (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's what's so cool, because it's like one of the oldest stories we have, and it is so relevant today. Yeah. One more ancient language that we have written down is, of course, hieroglyphics, the sexiest of them all. Yeah. Egypt is one of the oldest civilizations, but we do have the same puzzle. What can we know based on the sources that don't tell us very much at all? Mm. 
Egypt kept its secrets very close to the vest, and they did not make any public references to anything that might tarnish the shine of the court of the pharaoh of the king. Mm. If you let out the kind of realpolitik that's happening behind the scenes, it will get you nothing but dead or threaten your entire family. And so you don't write it down. It's not going to help you. You may verbalize it, you may talk about it, and that's why we end up having to tell this history through circumstantial argument of who was erased from this temple and who was put in their place and whose name was added over the cartouche and whose tomb was changed. And it all becomes an exercise of trying to remove the veils of the perfected story that the Egyptians are telling us. And that's what I love about ancient history. It is my favorite topic to teach. There's just enough mystery. <laughs> we know just enough to try to put the pieces together. And and I think if, if you present the mystery to students, mm. they really become completely engaged in it. And then around 1200 BCE, something bonkers happens, which, speaking of mysteries, is still a mystery. We call it the Bronze Age Collapse. Yeah. Some circles call it the end of the world. <laughs> Almost every single ancient civilization just goes poof and it's gone. And we so don't know why. We don't know. It's so crazy. So we got like, there's environmental explanations. The Egyptians in particular talk a lot about the sea people who invaded, mm -hmm. but we don't know who these sea people are. Um, some people say the aliens went home, of course, you know, um, there was a massive volcanic eruption. There's all kinds of possible explanations, but it is just wild. They all just go poof, and that's, that's the end. Only one survives. Only one appears to be the last man standing, and it's the Shang Dynasty, which, as I've already said, we know so little about. We're gaining fast, though. They're finding a lot of stuff in China right now. Oh, and the Americas survived. The Bronze Age collapse, uh, apparently, but but then we also know so little. We're just beginning to uncover stuff in yeah. early American history. So we need to hold off a few more years before we can tell much about those two. Yeah, we just figured out that these mountains were cities in, yeah. in South America. I mean, oh, it's so exciting. Hey. <laughs> but for the rest, poof, they're gone. Okay, so fast forward a few centuries and the world begins to rebuild itself. World historians call this the Iron Age mm. because they made iron. <laughs> this is the period that we typically think of as ancient history, like Greece, Rome, Qin, Qi, Huangdi, unifying China, the Silk Road, you know, all that classic ancient stuff. Mm. That's, that's the second wave of ancient history, the Iron Age. And here's where we see... The emergence of most of the major world religions. There's something magic about the year 600 BCE. Humans became very thoughtful. You've got Greek philosophy emerging with Thales. In Persia, you've got Zoroaster. Buddha in India. Confucius in China. All of them men. So what happened? We had Pythia. We had the Minoans. We had Gargi. How come now we've got all these men? Even the greatest political leaders are men. Alexander the Great, of course, built his massive empire for a hot minute. <laughs> but all we have to do is look right beneath the surface mm -hmm. for the women operating in this era of overwhelming patriarchy. For example, Olympias, mm -hmm. total Greek powerhouse. But would you ever know it from reading Wikipedia? 
the thing that Wikipedia believes is the most important fact for you to know about Olympias. The second sentence in her Wikipedia entry is that she was a devout member of the orgiastic snake-worshipping <laughs> cult of Dionysus. That wow. is All right. the thing that they really want you to know. Crucial information. Devout member. Snake cult. Not just a member, devout member. I see. Of the orgiastic snake-worshipping cult. And that explains everything. So we can just cast her aside. Right. She's the deviant sex maniac. Yeah, probably. ignore everything right. else about her. Mm -hmm. This obviously says a lot more about us now and about the men like Plutarch who are writing about her 400 years after she dies Yeah, than it does about her. Mm -hmm. But that narrative is the one that we're living in. Wikipedia is where most people are going to encounter history. Now, in one of the pieces that remains of Alexander's empire, Judea, among the Hebrews, another major religion has formed, Judaism. And we typically think of Judaism as patriarchy on steroids also. <laughs> but in the midst of a culture war in Judea about what they're going to be, this powerful woman emerges. Mm. And I love her. Do you remember how Shalom Zion protected her people from her husband? But then when the tables turned and her people wanted to exact revenge on their enemies, she protected her enemies yeah. from her people. Inspiring. And so because her sons couldn't get it together and they couldn't put the differences aside, uh, the weaknesses in their continued civil war led to the downfall of her nation. And she's the last and final ruler of a successful independent Judea. And Rome just burned the place down. And I know that if you visit Jerusalem, there are the stones of the first and the second rebuilt temple that are there. And some of them are so black. And they say that it's still from the burning of what happened. The fires that the Romans lit was so hot and so intense that even 2,000 years later, those stones are still sitting there burnt from the fire that Rome lit in that place. And then the people look back at the reign of Shalem Zion and say, those were the days. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people have questioned, you know, the rabbis and have said, well, you guys are writing these beautiful, glorious things about her. The kidney beans grew as large as livers. You know, that's <laughs> a really big kidney bean. But, yeah. you know, it's it's that. I guess it is that reflection of saying, wow, we had this great leader and she was so great. Can't yeah. we just go back and maybe embellish that a little bit, you know, because kidney beans as big as livers. I'm not sure. You know, anything yeah. is possible. I'm not sure. But uh, I think it's just reminiscing on how great it was. Oh, let's just bring her back. Let's just bring her back. And they mm. couldn't. Good and person. Of course, <laughs> she gets a badge. <laughs> And of course, eventually, among the Hebrews in that troubled pocket of the Roman Empire, Christianity will emerge and Christians will put a whole new twist on religion. <laughs> they're secretive. They're so fiercely monotheistic that they refuse to sacrifice to the emperor <laughs> like everybody else is expected to do. You know, so you get Christian martyrdom, of course, <laughs> and Perpetua and Felicitas. Do you remember them and oh, the yes. sick, sickly animals? Yep, the <sighs> most ferocious cow. Yes! I forgot about the most ferocious cow. Yeah. How could you forget about the most ferocious oh, cow? That's the most important part. That's the best line. Wow. <laughs> 
So Perpetua and Felicitas and, and many people like them are standing up to Rome in a passive kind of way. But at the same time, over in modern Syria, mm. Zenobia is yeah. straight up staging an armed rebellion. And she was so close. <laughs> she did it for a while. She took Egypt. She, she took Turkey. She minted coins. Yeah. She Man. defeated the Roman Empire for several years. Yeah. That's a giant what if. <laughs> and in China, the Han Dynasty roughly corresponds with Rome. And so China is doing much the same thing. Expansionist empire. They're having these showdowns with their neighbors. Some of the <laughs> most epic happen in Vietnam. Those sisters mm -hmm. we put in our book. But the Huns, they definitely couldn't conquer them. So they bought off the Huns and they used money that they got from Rome from selling Rome silk. <laughs> Why didn't so, anyone else think of that? I know. <laughs> and so in one of history's great ironies, it's such an amazing cycle. The Huns are just sitting up there on the North Asian steppe on these piles and piles of money. But it's <laughs> one of the worst pieces of real estate on earth. They couldn't build a city if they wanted to. You can't grow food. Like, you can't do anything in that landscape. So they're like, we'll just have tons of money and nothing to do with it. Why don't we go west? And so they start invading westward. And they create this pure chaos as they work their way west. And in one of the great symmetries of history, eventually, using Rome's wealth, the Huns invade Rome and bring about the downfall of the Roman Empire. Wow. <laughs> Wait, I don't think I knew that. It was the Huns that defeated Rome? Well, there was about 10 different possible... Pe people point the finger at about 10 different things. Yeah. But the Huns were a huge one in the year 452 when Attila the Hun... Uh, attacked Rome. The emperor actually ran away, leaving only the Pope to defend Rome. Wow. Um, and he pulled a Gandalf and stood outside the gates and like with his staff and said, you shall not pass. And and it's it's one of the great history wow. mysteries oh. of ancient history. It only involves men, sadly. Wait, I can find a woman in there somewhere. Yeah, tell that one in an yeah. episode. Yeah, because it's epic. It's epic. So traditionally, historians have said that Rome fell in the year 476. That's when the last emperor was ousted. Mm. Um, and that has been so complicated now by historians that really we say, talk about like the decline of Rome. And yeah, I just I guess I always just thought it was like infighting and just collapse. It was a little bit of everything. And it was invaded by the Visigoths and also the Ostrogoths and also the Vandals mm -hmm. and also the Huns. And, you know, so there's all these and different episodes. What's his face going crazy? And... Yeah. Mm. But traditionally still, even though we know that it's a super complex process and some people even say Rome never fell at all, we still use that date 476 as like the linchpin mm. that marks ancient history from medieval history. Yeah. So 476 Ta-da! Mm. Ancient history is gone, and the Dark Ages begin. And yes, I did just call it the Dark Ages. Now, medievalists, don't at me. I am fully aware you are of all one. the debates, <laughs> <laughs> points of discussion, and blind spots and everything about calling it the Dark Ages. But um, we're doing a traditional timeline here. <laughs> and the game has changed. Rome is in shambles, which we shall return to shortly. Hmm. But let's spin the globe at this time first and see what's going on elsewhere. Because China, China is feeling pretty great. The Huns are gone. Yeah. And in fact, China is entering one of its golden ages, probably mm -hmm. the most technologically advanced in the world at the time. Mm -hmm. And a woman is at the helm. Yes. 
she is an extremely good political maneuverer. She is dangerous. She is violent. She rules with an iron fist in her court. Mm. She has a very strong and vibrant secret police. And if you cross her, you will go down. Wow. But she is a benevolent and a stable ruler for the people. She institutes these really powerful reforms that actually do help the kingdom. And at a point when the Tang Dynasty is really starting to crumble and in danger of falling apart, modern historians now realize, you know, she is the force that really stabilizes things, holds everything together, and allows the Tang Dynasty to continue for another 200 years. Mm. And while it seems fairly horrifying to us to hear about the emperor poisoning her own granddaughter, for example, to <laughs> maintain hold on power. <laughs> this is fully in line with Confucian rules of government. Yeah. Tang Dynasty China, this is iconic stuff. They've discovered magnetism, gunpowder. They know how to fireproof stuff. They've invented air conditioning. They've invented <laughs> agricultural machines. This is one of the great golden ages of poetry. <laughs> that reminds me, remember how Wu Zhao heard that poet who was like critiquing her. Like, oh, right, yeah. Her moth-like eyebrows. Yeah, like these wicked burns. And yeah. she goes, I need to hire this man. Yeah. <laughs> she awesome knows how move. to run a campaign. <laughs> and across the Pacific, over in the Americas, another powerful woman has emerged among the Maya. A woman we're really only just beginning to uncover and understand. <laughs> Thanks to those stelae at Koba. Do you remember when we went there? Yeah. And you don't know it, Olivia, but as we're biking along here, you're actually on an ancient Mayan road. It's called Sock Bay 9. Ooh. They call the road as Sock Bay in our language, in Maya Yucateco. And you can't tell because most of it is completely overgrown, but it is 65 feet wide. What? So is that, that's like a freeway. Yeah. Is it? Wow. Yeah. Oh, look, we're approaching the dead end up there. Park your bike All over right. here. And now we're going to climb this hill. Bit steep. We're already sweaty. Just go for it. <laughs> and... Once we get up to the top, an otherworldly place. As soon as you take one step into there, you're like, whoa, what is this? Hmm. Those stelae told a story. A woman who built America's first roads, these elevated, bright, white engineering marvels. <laughs> but why? Because she can. <laughs> <laughs> Just amazing technology, given her resources, yeah. especially. But more on the supernatural side of things, we also have Shtabai, who is exacting her revenge on drunken men mm. by luring them down into the underworld. Right. Which would you do? Build engineering marvels or suck men down into the underworld? Um... Is there a third option? Because I'm not very good at engineering. No. <laughs> that feels too on the nose for a women's studies professor to be sucking <laughs> men down to the underworld. Right? But, eh. And while we've got Tang Dynasty China and the Mayan kingdoms doing their thing, 
Persia is also completely transforming because of a new religion that has just emerged in Mecca, Islam. <gasps> and it's spreading so fast across Persia and into North Africa. With it, schools that turn into the world's first universities. Yes. Founded by women. Yes. Episode needed. Absolutely. But they do, these two sisters, they do feature in our book. We definitely need to have a forthcoming episode about yes. them. Two sisters founding the world's first universities. Amazing. So this area, the area where Islam all spread, basically it's all of North Africa and then all of Persia over to India. We call it the Islamic world, mm. this era in history, because it's not unified. It's not an empire. It's not unified by one king or even one language or anything, but it's unified by Islam. So Islamic world is what we call it. Mm. And when the Islamic world arrives at sword point in Spain, <laughs> it encounters Christian Europe, which has been rocking along in the Dark Ages. <laughs> and, well now, that is a collision of technologies and a collision of worlds. <laughs> okay, so Dark Ages Europe. That's about the year 500, or 476, to about the year 1000. And we have a few episodes exploring the variety of experience in those years. Hmm. So there's Hrosvita. Do you remember her? Yes. Writing, writing plays. Dirty plays as a nun. Yeah. And making the women victorious. Yeah. So awesome. You got Hildegard von Bingen, oh, the naturalist healer composer. Hmm. Then there was Queen Matilda. The patron saint of disappointing children. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if we travel farther north, farther from the lands that used to be Rome, mm. a new people explode onto the global scene, the Vikings. Yeah. And they're going to wreak havoc <laughs> on medieval Europe, starting in the late 700s all the way up until about the year 1066. Nothing is safe. They're raiding everywhere. And also, as we saw with Gunhild, they're working their sorcery. Hmm. But how sexy was it to be a Viking? <laughs> Not very, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And we explored the reality of Viking life with the episode Coppergate Woman and my favorite artifact of all time, <laughs> the Lloyds Bank Coprolite. Yes! Gigantic fossilized human poop. <laughs> I have seen it with my own eyes. Oh, you've seen it now! <laughs> and it is as glorious as you imagine, it isn't is. it? <laughs> Discovered by Andrew Jones, who declared it as precious as the crown jewels. Agreed. And the Lloyds Bank Coprolite is as precious as the crown jewels because of this crazy bit of information it tells us about the Vikings. So they know that whoever pooped this poop ate lots and lots of meat and bran. That is a totally unsurprising Viking diet. That's what the Vikings ate. They they hated vegetables, apparently. But this poop also contained many, many eggs of parasitic worms. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. And these particular parasites can bore through tissue and can emerge from every orifice of the human body, oh. including your eyes. Oh, no, no, no. Yep. Oh. So now you have to picture a Viking sitting no, I don't. eating their meal. Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't have to picture that at all. And every once in a while, they're just, you know, very itchy. 
very itchy eyes, itchy nose. And hey, what time period from the past would you want to live in? <laughs> the good old days. Yep. Oh, the bold and oh. brave days of the Vikings. So consider the Lloyds Bank Coprolite next time you declare that the Dark Ages were not dark. Think about all the worms falling out of your mm-hmm. eyes. So here's a question I always wonder. Okay. Europe at this point is stupid and awful. <laughs> and... Olivia's saying that, medievalists. Yeah. <laughs> you can at her. And, and <laughs> I am a medieval lit person, so I can say it. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> but it's it's bleak and depressing and not great, frankly. Mm-hmm. And Asia and the Islamic world and yeah. the Americas are like booming and doing great and inventing yeah. new stuff and being fabulous. <laughs> what happened? How does Europe end up on top again? <laughs> it's so How weird, do you isn't come it? From worms coming out of your eyeballs <laughs> and no one being able to read to. <laughs> anything yeah great question (laughs) honestly nobody who would have looked at the world in the year 1200 would have said europe now that's the future (laughs) Uh, but what nobody could predict was that earth was home to one teeny tiny little genius Mm. bacterium called yersinia pestis Mm -mm. the black death wow We can blame the Mongols, I believe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they came from the same place the Huns came from. And they were just steamrollering across planet Earth. Another episode is in the pipeline to highlight the Mongols. Because, Mm. wow, Genghis Khan's daughters. Amazing. Amazing. But anyway, so these Mongols, um, they built the largest contiguous empire in the history of the world. So that means like it's the largest land mass, Mm. you know, all touching each other. Um, It stretched from... Korea, all the way to Turkey. Uh, They went right up next to Greece. And then they were like, "Mm, (laughs) Europe doesn't matter. Couldn't even be bothered to invade it. That's how (laughs) backwatery it was. But um, among all of their campaigns, they must have picked up this tiny little bacterium somewhere. Some people are claiming, actually in just the last week, some people are claiming that they have found the origins of it in Kyrgyzstan. Mm. I'm not convinced that it's the very beginning beginning, but they found the oldest possible case. Mm. And do you know where they found it? In a skeleton's tooth. Yeah. Teeth. Uh, and they picked up the Black Death, and they brought it with them everywhere they went. They had the most amazing cavalier attitude toward the Black Death. <laughs> they were dying in droves. Their armies were just being decimated. And they basically said, if we're going down, we're going to bring Taking them down with us. with us. So wow. they would take their nearly dead sick soldiers, put them in a trebuchet, and yeah. literally launch them over the walls of Baghdad so that they would splatter on the other side and spread the oh. disease. So that's why I'd say we can blame them, because they were, like, actively spreading wow. it. Its impact cannot be overstated. In my personal opinion, it's the biggest event in the history of the world. It's basically like pushing reset on planet Earth. Mm. 
we're still just beginning to study its impact in Asia, but simplified version based on what we know right now, the death toll in Asia is probably 90%. Wow. That's, I mean, I've never even, I've literally never even heard anyone mention the Black Death yeah, in Asia at all. Exactly. I always just hear it in Europe. Yeah. Yes. It had not even occurred to me. So it, it was about 1320 when it wow. first broke out in, in China. And the skeletons they just found in Kyrgyzstan was like 1328. So it's pretty close wow. to patient zero. Um, yeah, the Mongols are gone. It's over. And I don't think anything else could have stopped them. I honestly think the world would be completely different. They would have discovered the Americas. Like, we'd all be speaking Mongolian. Everything would wow. be different. But this germ comes along. Poof! The Mongols are over. It's gone. And China is, like, basically just reeling, you know, yeah. scrabbling to, to put civilization back together. So Asia is out of the running. As the Black Death works its way to the Middle East, the Islamic world embraced it in a different kind of way. They didn't intentionally spread it by launching people <laughs> over walls. But they also, even though they were the most advanced medically in the world by a million miles yeah. at the time, they also were Muslim. And Muslims believe that God is merciful. God doesn't punish people. And so even though it looked like something terrible... They had to believe that it was meant to be. And so they didn't use any tactics to try to stop the spread or anything. Mm. They were just like, let God do his thing. Inshallah. And so their death rate was probably 70% in, across the Islamic world. Wow. So not as bad as Asia, but still like the government armies, you know, security, yeah. everything. It's in shambles. It's completely fallen apart. And then the Black Death rolls into Europe. But they're Christian, and they have a different response to it. They have all kinds of scapegoats. They're like, this plague came from the Islamic world because they are poisoning the air and trying to wipe out Christians. <laughs> that kind of ignores the fact that 70% of Muslims died, but right. whatever. Um, you can blame demons. You can blame Satan. You could blame prostitutes. You can blame lepers. You could blame Jews. You can blame dogs. You could blame cats. Mm -hmm. So they tried all kinds of things. They tried quarantine. They wore plague suits. They were practicing all kinds of preventative measures. Most of them didn't work, but some of them did. Europe's death rate was about 50%, <laughs> which, you know, when you learn about it in school, you're like, oh my gosh, death rate of 50%. But when you zoom out on the scale of the globe, yeah, you know, that's oh, only 50. Yeah. Their government structures did not collapse. Hmm. I mean, they had a lot of challenges and a lot of changes, but it didn't mean the end of all of their systems. Mm. And so Europe is the last man standing. Wow. It's wild. They just like leapfrog to the front of the globe thanks to this little tiny bacteria. And meanwhile, in America, so the Black Death, as far as we can tell, did not reach the Americas, but the Maya wiped themselves out. No mm -hmm. bacterial assistance needed. Their collapse is part of an ongoing mystery. Mm -hmm. Um could be environmental, it could be invaders, you know, there's a whole bunch of theories anyway, but the Maya also just went poof. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it's this incredible historical twist that nobody would have predicted as the world shifts from the Middle Ages to the early modern era, it's Europe that's at the front of the queue. <laughs> and that's why Europe sends ships across the Atlantic to see what's there. <laughs> Conquistadors are like, what have we here? This is a whole new <laughs> continent to destroy. 
And now, this is where I think our traditional narratives are most confounded by the inclusion of lost women. Mm. Because the story goes, the conquistadors came to the New World, wiped everybody out with their evil Spanish ways, the end. Right? <laughs> but let's rewind and see how the story goes with our two ladies at the center of it. The Spanish lowly realize that what they've found is a whole new continent that nobody <laughs> knew existed. And one of their very first crews who landed in Honduras say, first things first, grab all the gold we can, ship it back to Spain uh, and tell them the news. So mm. they do that. But before they can get out of the Caribbean, a storm annihilates the gold-laden ship. A handful of them survive the wreck, clinging to driftwood. They wash ashore in a strange land where a tribe of native people are having a celebration. Do you remember this yes. episode? And they go, woo, food. Yes. And they eat them. Yes. <laughs> All except this guy who shows him he has special skills. He can make stuff out of wood. Gonzalo Guerrero. He catches the eye of the king's daughter. Zazel Ha. Mm. And in Maya culture, she is not allowed to speak. She's not allowed to have a brain or an opinion or anything. <laughs> but this shipwrecked Spaniard sees a spark in her and she sees it in him. And the rest is history. <sighs> Meanwhile, just a bit further north, a similar tale unfolds where a Spaniard comes ashore and meets an alluring native woman, Maline Seen. Mm hmm. She, too, not allowed to speak, but lo and behold, not only can she speak, she has a gift of language. Mm -hmm. And she becomes the Spaniard's translator, guide, mastermind, and lover. So together, Malinsine and Cortez will attempt to take down the whole of Central America, <laughs> while at the same time, Zazelha and Guerrero are trying to protect it from invasion. Mm. So you've got native women and Spaniards on both sides. Both couples are cited as the beginning of the mestizo race, hmm. which is largely all of Mexico today. Yeah. And yet, no one talks about them. Yeah, that's that's one of the more infuriating oh. ones that we've found, I think, those two. There is in Playa del Carmen uh, the main, um, we call them fraccionamientos. They are like um, residentials. Oh. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, the main residentials are, the names are Gonzalo Guerrero and Cecilia, just right next to. Oh. But nobody knows why. Nobody, if you go to Playa del Carmen and ask them who is Cecilia, nobody knows nobody. who exactly, nobody knows. This is really sad because, uh, especially here, the people is not really interested. I don't know, I think we are losing a lot. So this is, one more time, this is why I believe it's really important to get deeper into history and, yeah. and, and, and so we can yeah. share and get to know more about Sasirha because yeah. I believe it's really important. And I, I am pretty sure that uh, we will know and we will be, be very impressed, you know, about oh. Sasirha. This is one of those huge what ifs. What if yeah. they had won? That's a marriage of old and new worlds where they're trying to create like the right. best of both worlds. M mixing instead of oh, conquest. And what if? Now, spinning the globe again, as we look at the 16th century, this is actually the century that I specialized in for my PhD. Mm -hmm. There are so many interesting things going on. I call it a century of powerful women because you get female leaders popping up all over 
over the place. Mm. It really is amazing. So where should we start? Give me a continent. I'll give you a powerful woman everywhere. Um, well, Asia. Okay. China is in the Ming Dynasty. And if anybody's heard of any dynasty in China, They've that's heard of it. The Ming Dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> Ming vase, Massive. right? Exactly. Exactly. Pottery. They hold the secrets to porcelain. Mm -hmm. They're getting massively rich by trading it all over the world. They built the freaking Great Wall of China. <laughs> I mean, we need episodes here. Olivia, that's your job. Yeah. Okay. Spin the globe again. Uh, Europe and its new colony, North America, is busy burning witches. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got, we've got the Pendle Witches. Do you remember from our first Halloween oh, special? Yes. Tituba in Salem, mm. and of course, the OG witch, the one who set the standard for what a witch looks like and what she does. Mother Shipton. Mother Shipton. She was supposed to have come back here in these woods. So she was born down in the cave and then she'd come back here to escape the bullies and the harsh words of people in the town. She'd come back here for some peace and quiet. Um, to this woodland to collect herbs for remedies and potions. It is so beautiful. Oh, cool. But also kind of eerie. <laughs> she made potions for people and probably cast spells. I mean, really today, we'd probably call her an herbalist or an alternative healer. Hmm. They called her a witch. Now, of course, Christians aren't just burning witches. They're also burning heretics. Mm -hmm. Anyone who believes any kind of wrong things about the Christian God <laughs> condemned to hell. Yep. And there are so many heretics about because of a religious split that we call the Reformation. Mm -hmm. And it's in this bloody, nasty conflict that our very first episode, The Saint, is set. Mm -hmm. The consequences of refusing to plead uh, are actually pretty, pretty dire. It's pretty terrible, so it involves lying down uh, on top of a sharp rock with a board. I think they actually use uh, a door from her house being laid on top of her. Weights being increasingly laid on the board till the pressure is so great that the sharp rock underneath breaks the, the, the back. It's an extended and, and rather agonizing death, um, made still more horrific in these circumstances by the fact uh, that Margaret Clitheroe is um, quite possibly pregnant. Especially in religious history, this seems to be a realm in which women play a major role. Hmm. In cultures that are very patriarchal and we can't find many women's voices, you always seem to find them in the role of religious passion. Mm. This is really interesting to me. So it's no coincidence that many of our what's-her-name women played roles in this religious explosion. You mm. had Sally Lunn, the baker. Mm -hmm. She was on the run from France because she was a religious refugee. Mm -hmm. Margaret Cavendish, she had to run from England to France <laughs> as a lady-in-waiting to the Catholic Queen of Protestant England. <laughs> and in that twist of fate, do you remember she met her soulmate? She went on to become an oh. astonishing philosopher yes and cosplay queen <laughs> yes you never know you never know then you got one of your episodes marjorie kemp 
the mystic weeper. Yes. She's so great. <laughs> walked across the world. Yeah, walked across the world crying loudly. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Dorothy Osborne, the, the love letter writer. Yes. Hester Poulter, the poet. Oh, so good. Elizabeth Bray Allen, the Virginia plantation owner. Mm. I mean, all of these women were navigating a world of fierce religious opinion. Mm. And they all navigated it in their own ways. But they all know nobody is safe. Nobody is. And so given that climate of religious hatred and burning witches in particular, it's extra surprising that a woman like Maria Sibylla Marion existed. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And thus, we rejoin her and daughter Dorothea as they journey up the Suriname River. Wow. They had been in the capital city for about six months, but then they decided to take the plunge and travel all the way up the river to visit the failed Labadist colony. <sighs> and she's clearly not going for religious reasons, but because that place is deep in the rainforest, yeah. there's so much potential to find amazing creatures there. So hot. It was so hot. And we don't know, but she was probably traveling with servants. Um, almost certainly local women who were crucial to her understanding of nature there. She's talking to enslaved people. She's talking to Indian tribes there about how they use the plants and what they're observing of the insects. Um, and she writes it all down. She's basically an ethnobotanist before such a title existed. She's an outsider traveling to a remote environment and learning from the native people about all the different uses for plants. Hmm. And because she was a woman, she learned some amazing stuff that no stuffy patriarch uh. was ever going to learn. So Suriname was a Dutch colony, and it was um, a place with a lot of slaves and where they treated slaves terribly. And... She is very mostly focused on insects, um, but she does observe in the plantations. One, that they're not interested in any other plants, which she finds frustrating, that they're just obsessed with growing sugar. And two, the women on the plantations who are enslaved are using certain plants to prompt abortions. She paints one of these plants, which ironically is just this incredibly beautiful plant, and then in the text next to it, in her book, The Metamorphosis of the Insects of Suriname, she talks about how enslaved women would use this to prompt abortions. Her message is aimed at slave owners. She's saying, this is happening. Mm. Consider the implications mm. and ask yourself if what you're doing is right. Wow. That lady just paved her own way in <laughs> life. And her success tells me something significant. It it tells me that, like, as historians, we can talk about society's rules and the norms. Mm. We could talk about that all day long. But there's always going to be people who live in complete defiance of those norms and do it successfully. Mother Shipton never yeah. got burned. Yeah. <laughs> Maria Sibylla Marion I mean, she just built herself a massive career, and then her daughter was hired by the Tsar of Russia. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, that's, I think, the thing that people always seem the most surprised by when I'm talking about the podcast with them. Lots of people are concerned that we're going to run out of women. Oh. And yeah. <laughs> that I have to 
kind of remind people that despite the narrative that we've been told of, well, women just weren't allowed, like, yeah, there has never been a time when women weren't doing stuff. Women yeah. were always doing stuff. <laughs> always. All the time. <laughs> Whether they were allowed to or not, they did it anyway. Exactly. Um, but this religious split in the early modern era, it's not just a Christian thing. Every major world religion has this split. And it's all in the early modern era. Mm. It's such an interesting period. Um, Hinduism has the similar split. Sikhism, Confucianism, Islam, Buddhism. They're all doing this really big rift with varying levels of violence. Mm. One area of the world where religious split was really extreme in the early modern era was in India because it's the one time in history that India has a unified empire, the Mughal Empire. Mm. But this is a Muslim empire, which is ruling over a massive population of Hindus. Mm. Um, but Islam has its split and Hinduism has its split. And so it is just rife with this conflict. And it's in that era that two of our what's-her-name women yeah. play out both sides of the conflict. You've got Noor Jahan. In as an empress yeah. of the Mughal Empire. <laughs> and then you have Chand Bibi, who's leading the resistance against it. Mm. Epic. But regardless of where she is now, mm -hmm. living her best life underground, she's had an amazing variety of afterlives up here. In the iconography of John Beebe, which sort of goes viral in the 18th century, you see images of John Beebe hawking. Most of the images of her are with a falcon perched on her arm on a hunt. And she's also depicted at various points playing polo with her female companions. So she clearly is represented as being an avid sportswoman. Yet the idea of women riding horses, even those of the royal elite, seems to have been frowned upon at this time in Mughal imperial official records. In 1594, one of the only references to women in the Mughal emperor's address to his administrators, Akbar announced, quote, women should not be allowed to ride on horses unnecessarily. Only one year later, as Akbar's forces invaded Ahmednagar, Jan Bibi rode her horse rallying her troops to defend her territory against Mughal annexation. She is the only sovereign I have noticed who's always depicted with a falcon perched on her arm. The falcon, so prevalent in the iconography of John Bibi. And birds of prey more generally have long captured the imagination of Sufi poets. And India, that's an appropriate place to start the next chapter of world history which is a century of imperialism. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Fair Anita. Fair Anita offers fair trade products ethically sourced from 8,000 plus women in nine countries across the world. Fair Anita's bags, jewelry, gifts, scarves, clothes, and more are all made in ethical working conditions. Almost all their products are made from recycled materials, carbon footprint offset, handmade, locally sourced, and beautiful. I am right now wearing this amazing hand-stamped bracelet, which says, Ooh. we create ourselves as we go. I love that. Which is my motto for the year. And check this out, Olivia. Here's an unboxing in front of you. I got <laughs> these earrings, and they all have um, a story to wait tell. Wait a minute. Yes. 
I see what you're I thinking. I have a question. Uh-huh. <laughs> you don't have your ears I, pierced, right? That's right. But look, these earrings are irresistible. <laughs> I've been meaning to get my ears pierced for years, and I'm just going to do it. Well, there's an endorsement. And almost all of their products are under $20. Use the code HERNAME, all one word and all caps, and you'll get 10% off any order. Cute. Ethical. Affordable. Farinita.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So... As the Industrial Revolution kicks off in Europe and America, and this is something we really can pinpoint, it definitely started in Britain. So mm. you can give them credit or blame, whatever, <laughs> however you think. But the Industrial Revolution definitely started in Britain, quickly spread to America. And those countries, basically all of Europe and America, with this new technology, they suddenly hold the ultimate trump card any industrialized country can wipe the floor with any country that isn't. Mm. And Europe and America just smash and grab around the globe in a kind <laughs> of manic frenzy. So this is a long saga with bonkers showdowns absolutely everywhere. But really, like, the global question becomes, how will you stand up to the inevitable invasion countries of the world? Mm. How will you resist a country that has far superior killing technology. Hmm. So the British Empire emerges as the global winner, largest empire in the history of the world. They occupied 20% of the globe, far-flung areas, you know, Australia, New Zealand. <laughs> they have a piece of every continent. And it gave the British, who just on this tiny little island, yeah. Northern Europe, this astonishingly global experience. Yeah. and a global trade network. It provided, if you were male, an amazing opportunity for adventure. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we have to wonder how many women changed their stripes, so to speak, mm. to be able to live that life of adventure. Mm. Women were not allowed. And so, Margaret Bulkley embraced life as Dr. James Berry, mm. who eventually became Inspector General of all hospitals <laughs> in the whole of the British Empire. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Michael Duprez, who's the author of this biography on James Barry that I really enjoyed. It's called Dr. James Barry, A Woman Ahead of Her Time. Mm. He sees in James Barry someone who lived a lie in order to live her ambition, hmm. he says. But just what her ambition was, we'll never know. There are so many different possibilities, and I think that um, it all depends on how you want to see her story. Yet, I have this sneaky feeling, you know, from my own interpretation of some of 
things that you know he said that he just wanted to be a soldier <laughs> and you know this was kind of like a side effect <laughs> in a way a really amazing side effect okay of um his desire to be in the army What we can see clearly in hindsight, maybe the only thing, is that by following her ambition, whatever that was, she also did everything she could to lift up other downtrodden, poor folks all around the world and give them a chance. I would have loved to meet him. I want to ask her so many questions, you know? And I think that that... that that I would just like to tell her how much I admire her, you know, because it takes a very special person to not just shed, you know, a lifetime of indoctrination of the limits placed upon women, you know, and the belief that women were intellectually inferior to men, to just say no, and to try to transform her entire life and dedicate herself, you know, to the pursuit of something that he truly believed in and everything that she sacrificed along the way. It's extraordinary. What a global career. More typical for the time period was for women to stay at home in Britain, (laughs) but like read about the world or dream about the world or write about the world. Mm. So we have, you know, like uh, the Brontes Mm. and the Porter sisters, Ursula Bloom. And there were nations who stood up to imperialism. It was basically suicide, but still (laughs) some of them did. Ethiopia pulled it off. Yeah. And I would love to find an episode there. Of course, the major figures are male, but I bet we do some digging. Yeah. India also makes many attempts. Yeah. Lakshmi Bai among the resistors. Or was she? By all accounts, she put up a vigorous defense. But by March 30th, it was clear that she was not going to be able to hold the city. They began an assault on the fortress. But they don't capture Lakshmi Bai. Ooh. The story goes that as the British army and General Rose breach the city walls, Lakshmi Bai straps her son to her back, mounts her horse, and jumps from the walls of the fort on horseback to escape the besieging army. The horse dies from the impact of the fall, but Lakshmi Bai and her son survive And with four other companions, they flee into the night. Wow. And now she is sort of the symbol of Indian independence, right? She is the icon of the fight for independence for India from Britain. And her story takes on this huge other dimension that it didn't have in life. Which, uh, Pam Dollar points out, she would have been baffled by. Because she did not want Indian independence. She wanted her son to be king of Jhansi. She was not interested at all in a unified India or in removing the British from her kingdom. She just wanted her son to be the figurehead through whom the East India Trading Company ran its business. So what a strange twist to Mm -hmm. this story, right? 
I always am totally fascinated with the way that history will make your story into what it needs. Yes. Meanwhile, America's imperialist eye looks westward, believing that it's manifest destiny to stretch from sea to shining sea <laughs> for some reason. And explorers are called for, Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea. Mm-hmm. And they're like, tell us what we've got here. And what do they need? Rope. They need rope. Miles and miles and miles of rope. And Mary Irwin is going to make it. Rope was so important that one of the guys who went on the Lewis and Clark expedition, he kept a diary. And one of the lines I'll never forget that I read was, this expedition was held together by rope. And that just, that really got me because I thought, Mary, you made history, lady. Oh, that's awesome. She also, if people have heard of Commodore Perry. Yeah. In 1813, the British Royal Navy starts impinging on American territory and has taken Detroit. Oh, outrageous. The British seize control of Lake Erie. And there's this major battle. And Commodore Perry came to Mary Irwin and said, I would like you to please outfit my Navy for this upcoming battle. And she agreed. And they did a rush job for all of this rope, for all of these ships. And Commodore Perry's warships set off for Lake Erie and defeat the British. Wow. Liberate Detroit. (laughs) Yay. And push the British back to Canada. And, of course, Commodore Perry would go on to be a major force of imperialism for America (laughs) because America is eyeing Japan. Mm. And Japan's strategy with this whole imperialist movement has been isolation. They've basically just been like, la, 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 nobody look over here. (laughs) And it worked for a long time. But then America is like, is Japan allowed to just ignore us? (laughs) So they send in Commodore Perry and his famous black ships, Outfitted with Mary Irwin's rope. Amazing. And the black ships are famous for changing the history of Japan and the history of Asia. But while we're looking at ships on the Pacific in this time period, Mm -hmm. more powerful than Commodore Perry or literally anyone else on the seas (laughs) was Ching Shi. The best. Greatest pirate in the history of the world. She ruled the South China Sea right as the West was setting its sights on the whole of Asia. Hmm. Blackbeard commanded four ships. He was in charge of over 300 pirates and absolutely ruled the seas as a pirate for two years. Impressive stuff. He was the terror of the high seas. There's a reason that he is super famous. Sure. Flaming beard and all. Qingxia. Also pretty impressive. She commanded 1,800 ships Uh. (laughs) and about 70,000 pirates. Okay. (laughs) And was basically in charge of the entire pirate confederation of the South China Sea for 10 years. (laughs) So... It totally makes sense that she's not as famous as Blackbeard. (laughs) She didn't have a flaming beard, what can I say? She didn't have a flaming beard. She was 
quite literally the most powerful pirate in the history of the world. Now, China did not succeed in keeping the imperialist invasion at bay, which we will discuss more in a little bit. Well, sure, right, because they made Qingxi retire, and she was oh. the only one keeping the Portuguese ah. and British navies <laughs> away. <laughs> yeah. You they put... were like, this woman is annoying. Let's pawn her off and have her go, you know, open a nightclub somewhere. And then oh. all of a sudden, the British come in and destroy you. Oops. Leave women alone. <laughs> now, the scientific advancements that led to the Industrial Revolution and this whole imperialist frenzy is also what led to this new intellectual movement, the Enlightenment. Hmm amazing. It's another one of my favorite episodes in human history where people were enthusiastically just diving headfirst into the pursuit of knowledge. And the goal was explicitly to know everything. <laughs> they were like, we will figure it all out. Humanity can build a better world. Oh, for a time machine. Mm -hmm. To see the women in this era that were pushing the limits of what's possible. You've got women like Sophie Blanchard, mm. who's obsessed with this newfangled technology called the hot air balloon. <laughs> so awesome because she's basically making dramatic public spectacles of what's possible yeah. with human ingenuity. Yeah, and Jane Marsett, who says, hey, so yeah. science should be available to everyone, whether they had a posh public school education or not. Yeah, writing like those first science self-help books. Yeah, it opens the back door to let in I love the that. regulars. I love that. Caroline Herschel, discovering comets, nebulae, and of course, Planet George. Yes. And my personal favorite, Emily du Chatelet, hmm. who made so much of it possible by realizing that Newton could use a translator. <laughs> and those theories she had posed in her The Secret Essay she submitted? Oh yeah. 50 years later, someone would finally do those experiments and prove that she was right. <laughs> Yay! And guess who it was? Um, uh, I don't know, 50 years later? <laughs> I don't know. It was Caroline and William Herschel. <gasps> Are you serious? Yep, in their back garden in Bath. Oh, I love I know. that. It's so great. When I discovered that, I almost died. Oh. And in doing those experiments and actually following through with it, they discovered infrared light. What? I know. It's so awesome. They discovered infrared light? Yes, thanks to a, a experiment suggested to them 50 years previous by Emily de Chatelet. Wow. <laughs> Evidence for optimism is all around us, she said. Hmm. Nature shows us everywhere, and she believed math and science would prove it. Hmm. This world isn't perfect, of course, she said, yeah. but... It contains the best possible balance of things. Because the best possible world doesn't mean a pain-free world or a world without struggle. We need those things. Mm. They're a part of the whole. We have so many paths to happiness in this best possible world, she said. And when you choose to see it that way, your whole experience shifts. For as long as we live, we must try to make happiness penetrate every door open to our soul. 
We have no other reason for living. Let us try then to maintain good health, to have no prejudices, to have passions and to make them serve our happiness, to preciously guard our ability to suspend disbelief, to ward off sadness, to never regret the past. Lastly, and above all, let us be very clear what we want. Let us decide which route we want to take to spend our lives, and let us try to plant flower seeds as we go. And here's the amazing part. The goal of the Enlightenment was to find the answer to mm-hmm. life, the universe, and everything. <laughs> and they did it. They found the answer. And with the benefit of hindsight, we just get to skip right to the end. They found the answer. And they announce it to the world. And they've got it boiled down to one single word. <laughs> Liberty. And they say, this is it. It's what everything in the universe is striving for it's the magic ingredient and if you give people liberty they will become enlightened they said it's Hmm. an idea that absolutely changed the world (laughs) revolutions exploded all around the atlantic and then rippled even farther and it's in this this moment where people are just like passionately embracing the answer of liberty Hmm. that you get women like bubulina yeah anita garibaldi personally leading the liberation of their countries. He talks about her as the, you know, the army is coming across the river Mm. under fire, under can of fire. Everyone else is huddled down, hiding in the boats. And she is standing upright in the front of the boat with her gun outstretched, just absolutely fearless. She will not be cowed and nothing will stop her. Mm-hmm. Which again, Bubulina, the, yep. the standing in the boat just refusing. Yeah. I mean, of course she believed in destiny because she should have been killed constantly. <laughs> and she never died. Awesome. As the Uruguayan War winds down, Giuseppe finds out that he is now free to come back to Italy. <laughs> and so... Off they go, the Garibaldis and their children, to start the next war. It was an era of revolution. And not just, I mean, it was the whole of Latin America, Mm -hmm. but also Italy and Greece, of course. (laughs) America, France, Haiti, Jamaica. I mean, the dominoes just keep falling on and on. England's clinging on the edge, absolutely terrified. (laughs) There's a reason there's all these regiments in the countryside in every Jane Mm -hmm. Austen you've ever read. (laughs) But even where there isn't a political revolution, like in England, Mm. the idea of liberation took hold so strongly that it's still rippling around today. Mm. People embrace liberation in their own personal lives, like public universal friend, Hmm. liberated from the notions of gender or religious hierarchy. Judith Sargent Murray published hundreds of essays aiming to liberate women from stifling gender roles. Hmm. Edmonia Lewis, the sculptor. Yeah. Eve, Harriet Jacobs, all, all three of these black women who embraced liberation in their own way, Hmm. in their own lives. 
to the degree that they were allowed. Mm. So this fine line that she has to walk of revealing enough to make it clear what she's trying to bring to people's attention. Mm. Like, you need to know what is happening. Mm -hmm. You need to understand the horrors of what enslavement looks like for women while zealously maintaining her own position as a righteous, virtuous woman. Because that's also critically important for what she's doing. She is writing this at a time where women are officially pedestalized and cherished and protected Mm -hmm. to make sure that womanhood is not ever defiled. Mm -hmm. None of that applies to enslaved women. And she is making the case for it should. Mm -hmm. It's, It's a ridiculous balancing act that she's doing. She's like juggling hmm. fire on a high wire above alligators <laughs> and she, she and she pulls it off she somehow is so successful wow. i mean this book was so successful at what it was trying to do <laughs> spinning the globe east the ways that liberation played out among Asian countries responding to imperialism, that's a massive saga in itself. How will we free ourselves from an invader with much more technological death machines? <laughs> Japan, it was called the Japanese miracle. Some people now call it the Meiji Restoration. Basically, Japan just westernized as fast as it possibly could. Mm. It was such a radical choice at the time. Mm. Embrace all things Western. Learn Western music and play Western instruments and and basically just learn to beat the West at their own game. Mm. It worked. It stopped imperialist nations from just completely annihilating Japan. China, however, did not Westernize Mm. and did not industrialize and imploded into civil war You got the Boxer Rebellion. I mean, a century of brutality. Because China refused to listen to a woman. Aha! Suchi. Another episode that absolutely will happen. (laughs) Yeah. Listen to women. Listen to women. And so a lot of people were just had to escape China. I mean, it is this crazy bloodbath. And they look across the Pacific to America, the land of opportunity. And they sail over like Haoju. And so many Chinese immigrants who came in the most bizarre twist of fate. Which brings us to the American saga. The the 19th century drama, which has such an incredibly varied cast of characters and the wildest of wild scenarios, it's almost impossible to summarize. So let's let our women illustrate the scale of the play for us. Okay, so these are all women we've featured as part of this American saga of the 19th century. You've got Margaret Brown, unsinkable. Mm. Pearl DeVere, Mm. in Colorado, but taking very different (laughs) tacks. Maria Ruiz de Burden, in Mm. California, but Mexico. Yeah. But also she's Spanish. Yeah. Amazing. Eileen Bowers, Mm. who struck the largest silver mine in American history. (laughs) Cherokee America, among Mm. the Cherokee trying to navigate the shifts. Martha Hughes Cannon, polygamist Mormon (laughs) senator. Senator, (laughs) who beat her husband. (laughs) 
in an election. In an election. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have May Alcott. Mm. I mean, it's amazing that all of these stories are happening at the same time. Such an amazing, vast diversity of stories. Mm. Mary Ibsen, the 12 year old who worked for the Transcontinental Railroad. <laughs> May Timbimbu Perry and her Shoshone ancestors mm. and the massacre at Bear River. I mean, it is the story of America in this century. It is a global immigration story. People coming from literally all over the world, mm. together with all the native population of America being overrun. It's a story of industrialization, but it's also a story of just sheer human courage slavery and freedom desperation and hope and hubris <laughs> yes and maybe the transcontinental railroad sums it all up mm. the transcontinental railroad is to me a saga of america's disenfranchised on the sweeping stage of an entire continent individuals who never had a chance before seized their moment it it seems like everyone involved were the underdogs <clears throat> indians being pushed off of their land by the unstoppable engine of progress irish immigrants driven reluctantly to america by famine at home former slaves leaving behind the brutality of a post-war South, Chinese immigrants who left a war-torn country in search of a dream that was the gold rush, and Mormons who were mostly immigrants whose religious extremism was so unpopular that they had to move to the middle of nowhere. <laughs> These are the misfits who metaphorically and literally brought America together. Hmm. Golden Spike signified unity in 1869 and unity that came at a steep cost. Hmm. And 150 years later, that story is as relevant as ever. Now, as we approach the turn of the 20th century, the whole world has its eyes on America because it's booming like no country ever has, literally. It's the most explosive growth in any country in the history of the world. Hmm. And global power structures are shifting and a new generation of tycoons is being born <laughs> from the humblest roots. You know, you got Carnegie and Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, all all the big men with lots Whoa. of money. However, it's not all men. Mm. This is the era of Madam C.J. Walker. Yeah. I don't know. She might be too famous for the podcast. I don't know. But anyway, most women in this era are back in the kitchen. And for that, we can thank the cult of domesticity <laughs> from the Victorian era. See, now we're in mind. I, I have become famous for telling my students that you can always blame the Victorians. Just oh. in any context for anything, <laughs> whenever they uh -huh. ask a question, why is it you can blame the Victorians? <laughs> 
And we call this period the Gilded Age because when something is gilded, it's coated in gold. But underneath, it could be rotting. It could be mm. horrible. And so the era has taken on this label of like, on the surface, everything looks amazing. <laughs> underneath, it's rotten and stinky and horrible. Yep. <laughs> so what do the women from this period tell us about what life was like? We have Constance Fenimore Wilson, hmm. Victorine Moreau, Lola Ridge, Alma Mahler. Hmm. All of these women had incredible talent that was ignored because <laughs> sexism Yep. with tragic results. Hmm. Two women's lives were quite directly affected by the tycoons. Mary Lemmis Titcom, who was <laughs> helping with the library movement, <laughs> and Ida Tarbell who took him down to the mattresses. (laughs) And then you have Annie Londonderry, Hmm. whose global bicycle adventure once again proves that even though society had strict rules, which held a lot of people back, there were always women who were just living one giant nope. Yeah, she called herself a a new woman, which was a very commonly used phrase in those days, in the 1890s, to to describe women who were agitating for equality or independence and working outside the home. The 1890s was the height of what was called the bicycle boom in the United States and in Europe. Millions of people were spending their money on bicycles. There was also a, a, a growing public fascination with the world at large. The 18 late 1800s was a an era of globalization. You know, steamships could now take you from New York to France in less than a week. The telegraph traveled around the world in a matter of minutes instead of days or weeks. And as a result, people became interested in the foreign travels of other people. It was a way of vicariously experiencing the world. So she was able to seize on that. Um, And she seized on the women's movement. The confluence of all three of these can be seen in her story. She was so clever in exploiting all three of them to build her fame. She sold advertising space. She would rent space on her arm for $100 for a ribbon advertising bicycle tires. Or a perfume maker would pay to have her stitch an advertisement on the thigh of her bloomers. So she made a lot of money. I mean, she had a background in advertising, and that's, she put that to work. She, she literally became a mobile billboard. The cyclist was introduced as Miss Londonderry. And one would have known at a considerable distance that she hailed from the land of stars and stripes. She had a high old time. Her photographs were bought for 200 francs apiece. Smith's soap and Jones pills were labeled all over the bicycle at 25 cents a spoke. She sampled somebody's milk, gave a certificate of its excellence, and pocketed 200 francs. And she received a hero's welcome everywhere. But we fancy she exaggerates. Some women do. To me, she really epitomized the late 1800s. Especially the Gilded Age aspect of maybe that's what happened. Maybe she rode her bike around the world. But it doesn't matter because it's more fun. Because on the surface, it's a great story. story. It's pretty. Great point. (laughs) (laughs) But come 1914, everything Mm. changes. Mm. Of course, 
The Great War breaks out for no rational reason. I'm still mad about it. <laughs> and power structures shift. Some women use this moment as a springboard to a new life, like Maud Fitch, mm. the ambulance driver. And some use it as a springboard for a whole new movement, like Tepuya Hirangi mm. in New Zealand. Yeah. The man in its old Victorian forms is decaying, hmm. and the next generation is taking over. It's the Roaring Twenties! Anything goes! <laughs> and if you've got the vision and the guts, the world is open to possibility. Women all around the world are waking up, like Huda Shirawi in mm. Egypt. So she was a very wealthy woman, and she used her own money to, to create all these programs. She, in 1908, she opened the first secular philanthropic organization in Egypt with the intent of serving women. She opened medical dispensaries, and also she started a lecture series for women at the Egyptian University. She opened the first girls' school that offered a general education for girls rather than a vocational training. She ran programs for uh, widows where she would give them financial assistance monthly. Yeah, I mean, all kinds of stuff like that. This is all with her own money. Reading the women's journals that she read, man, you can see that they are consciously building something huge. This one is an article that was published in 1911 by Fatma Nisibe. She says, she writes, quote, pay attention to every corner of the world. We are on the eve of a revolution. Be assured this revolution is not going to be bloody and savage like men's revolution. On the contrary, it will be pleasant and relatively quiet, but definitely productive. You must believe this, ladies." Unquote. So, I mean, clearly they were aware that, you know, something was changing, right? And this global. was a worldwide, a global yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. And that's what makes it really interesting. And, and Huda Sharabi is definitely, I mean, she was in person, like, attending these international women's conferences. Adelaide Herman, the magician. Yes. Frances Marion, screenwriting in Hollywood. <laughs> Marjorie Hillis, telling all women that they can live alone and like it. <laughs> Sabina Spielrein. Changing mm. the game with psychoanalysis. Yeah. Valeska Gert <laughs> dancing her way into making everybody angry all yeah. the time. <laughs> yeah. Anything goes. All of them shocking in their own way. Hmm. And add to this new spirit, new inventions like, I don't know, planes. And you've got endless amazement. She's a regular Phryne Fisher. Ah, yes, I think she yeah. is. I just love picturing the moment when her parents find out that rather than doing the society rounds, off in Miami, she's been secretly <laughs> learning to fly. <sighs> Thoroughly modern. 
these new women's movements, they're not always going to be successful. There's a revolutionary attempt in Japan led by a woman that mm. ended very badly. Mm. Another future episode. Mm. And, and plenty of examples of women's movements in the same spirit as Huda Shirawi's that failed. Mm. But in one part of the world where women were deeply involved in revolution that did succeed and did in fact turn out to be a massive world-changing event is Russia and China. Hmm. Communist movements, which often just denied that gender differences were relevant in the least, <laughs> those movements exploded onto the global political scene. And in the Russian theater, Sahib Gizatulina, she lived through all of those wild shifts. I mean, she was in the Tatar state, then she became part of imperialist Russia, and then the uh, 1917 Russian Revolution happened. <laughs> then she tried to stage a revolution among the Tatar people that failed. And then she was in the USSR, and then she's working for the communist government. I mean, <laughs> what a life. Bananas. And at the same time, Stefania Turkovich in Ukraine has to go on the run. Yeah, she wasn't going to write their patriotic drivel. And so, oh, that's this so interesting. Modernist nonsense means she yeah. has to leave. Closer to home, Claudia Jones, hmm. Celia Sanchez were both involved in communist movements attempting to force more equality in the American capitalist system. <laughs> but then, boom, World War II. Unprecedented in its scale, in its brutality, in its intensity. And the fad these days is for textbooks to add a paragraph about women in the war. <laughs> and so it'll, it'll be talking all about World War II and then it'll be like a little paragraph. And here's women's experience in the war. They made munitions. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but let me present you with our World War II characters and see if there's any way we could summarize women's experience in the war <laughs> in a paragraph. So here are the women whose lives were directly forever impacted by the war. The Overstegen sisters mm -hmm. in the Netherlands. Helen Duncan, mm. the last woman accused of witchcraft. Yeah. <laughs> Sahib Gizatulina in mm. Russia. Helen Stevens mm. racing in the Olympics against these <laughs> Aryan athletes. Getting hit and, on by Hitler. Yeah. And of course, Sophie Scholl. Mm. They did those four leaflets. And they were quite damning. I mean, this was already high treason here. One of the first had every word that comes out of Hitler's mouth is a lie. And just saying that, you're setting yourself up for getting killed. Another line, isn't it true that every honest German is ashamed of his government? I mean, it just gives you chills that they would say these things. It was very courageous and very, you know, almost foolhardy, but, but good, good. Somebody, some, somebody is saying something finally. I mean, I don't think you could summarize women's <laughs> experience in mm -hmm. World War II, even just from, from these examples. Mm. Um, and you also have women in armies all around the world, especially in communist countries who decided that gender shouldn't matter. So in Russia and China, especially, I mean, the famous sharpshooters and, um, and, but also in the Philippines and Vietnam and Thailand, women are stepping up to fight. And in the USSR especially, they're announcing, not only do we not care about gender, 
we don't care about race. Mm. They issue an open invitation to people of color. They're like, hey, come and join your comrades in the fight for true equality. And black people left America by the thousands mm. and went to Russia because they're like living in the Jim Crow South. Yeah. They left by the thousands. But at the same time, at the same time you have that kind of exodus, you also have this influx of Jewish refugees mm. coming into America, leaving Nazi Europe. I mean, mm. what a world. And so I think about that reality, that global context as it's reflected in the lives of these women that we featured, Mary Lou Williams, mm. Florence Price, yeah. both black female composers in America mm. at a time when it's supposed to be the land of the free, but not it's not. Yeah. I wonder if they ever thought, should I go to Russia? Should mm. I go back to Africa? You know, mm. that movement. But then you also have um, May Mallory. Yeah. Frances Glessner Lee. Mm -hmm. This wealthy woman who's using forensic science to get justice for poor people. Yeah. And that, in a way, you have like racial consciousness, gender consciousness, class consciousness. And at the same time, the same same lifespan, Tasha Tudor mm. just escapes the world. She just goes, bye. Yeah. And goes and lives in a farmhouse in Vermont, pretending like she lives in 1830 for yeah. her whole life and just draws charming pictures and celebrates Christmas. Amazing. That's like the, uh, the, the flip side of living a life of nope, right? Just like, yeah. no, I refuse. <laughs> yeah. I will not You're engage. Right. You're right. That is an absolute life of nope. Yeah. And Bessie Margolin, mm. a Jewish orphan in the Deep South. Before there was a notorious RBG, there was an audacious Bessie Margolin. She was part of and contributed to some of the major legal events in our nation's history. She grew up in a Jewish orphanage in New Orleans. She got a scholarship to Newcomb College from her high school. From there, she decided after two years to go to law school, which no girl from the orphanage had ever done. She was among the first women law graduates in the country, among the tops in her law school class, and was able to become one of the first women awarded Yale's prestigious Sterling Fellowship, and with that, got the equivalent of a PhD in law. Every country came out of the other side of the war changed. And America emerged out the other side with this fascinating twist on gender, class, and religion. I mean, they basically just turned everything up to 11. Mm. And innovators like Lois Meek Stoltz <laughs> were no longer needed. Programs that supported working women are now irrelevant. <laughs> And even those who pushed back against mainstream culture, like the beat poets, mm. they still maintain some hardline gender roles that led to Carolyn Cassidy getting Indeed. completely sidelined. <laughs> so the roles stuck mm. starting in the 1950s into the 1970s so that we still had women like Sybil Stockdale, who are striving to just be a model housewife yeah. model housewife somehow still is yeah, the goal even traditional in, the 1970s. in quotes that aren't yeah. actually traditional at all yeah 
And of course, Sybil Stockdale was a master spy on the side, <laughs> but just you prese- know. presentable and in heels and yeah. a nice suit. The next generation is going to do things a bit differently, though. Catherine Leroy, for example, she just got on a plane and went to the war front. Yeah. No permissions needed, no yeah. petitions to the government, <laughs> no authority at all. <laughs> It'll be fine. But in Asia, while all this is going on, China is in the midst of its cultural revolution. Mm, so yeah. when you interview Jun Chang for Sushi, would you please mm. also do an interview about her mother during the cultural revolution? Because yes, I can please. never forget that. The most unforgettable book. Wild Swans, Blow Your Mind. Amazing. So cultural revolution is going on. Mm. And at the same time, Africa. Yeah. Turns up the volume. And over the course of a couple decades, almost every country gains independence from European empires. Yeah. And United States civil rights movement, there's mm-hmm. this big push to move back to Africa. Let's, yeah. Let's go home. Let's start a new country in a Africa. New, yeah. A new one actually based on liberty. And they name it Liberia. Yeah. And after, you know, and the U.S. after kicking Claudia Jones out to mm-hmm. England... To get her out of our hair, she ends up becoming like one of the most powerful forces in yeah in British in civil back- rights and in that that back to Africa movement. And amongst all these new African nations, like so many before and probably so many to come, they start fighting amongst themselves about what does the future look like. Hmm. Just like all the other countries based on liberty, what does liberty actually look like? How hmm. do we really structure a government? Do we really want women's liberty and equality? <laughs> I mean, don't let's be silly. <laughs> and Wangari Matai hmm. picks up the banner carried by so many women before her for so many millennia. And she says, we can heal the earth and women will do it. (laughs) That's a new way forward that dovetails liberation and feminism and caring for the earth. That is new. It's exciting. And and it makes everyone's lives better, not just women. (laughs) And it's working. When we are planting trees, I have to keep reminding them that the trees they are cutting today were not planted by them, but by those who came before. So they must plant the trees that will benefit communities in the future. I remind them the roots of our future will bury themselves in the ground and a canopy of hope will reach into the sky. I am one of the lucky ones who lived to see a new beginning for my country. Others were not so fortunate. But I have always believed that no matter how dark the cloud, there is always a thin silver lining. And that is what we must look for. The silver lining will come, if not to us, then to the next generation or the generation after that. And maybe with that generation, the lining will no longer be thin. I am an optimist. (laughs) And when I look at the whole history of the world in the big picture, I am in awe. Speechless 
in any attempts to summarize the feeling when you think about the multitudes of women who lived and left and passed the baton mm. on in this epic human story. We are part of it. We are this chapter right now. All of us on Earth. Hmm. And we'll be here for a little while. And we will leave. <laughs> and we'll pass the baton. And in some ways, to me, it's like, it's comforting. It's like, this is a massive saga that's beyond any of us. Hmm. But also, like Walt Whitman says, powerful play goes on. And you can contribute a verse. I hope you enjoyed this special 100th episode of What's Her Name podcast. Thanks to all of our guests, all of our patrons, all the musicians and production assistants for helping us to bring this project to life over the past five years. There are so many more stories to tell, and with your support, we will keep going. Music for this episode was composed by Tower of Light, Savick, Elephant, Kevin McLeod, Doug Maxwell, Sir Cubworth, Radio Hiroko, Zenon Zeferino, Aaron Kenny, Chris Hagen, Cole Porter, and Daniel Foster-Smith. Our interns are Katie Boucher and Livia Foley. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post all kinds of additional content each week. And there are just a couple spots left on our Lost Women of Mexico tour coming up this September. So if you wanted to sign up for that, hurry up and snag those last couple spots. Thank you to you, our listener for spreading the word about these women and helping us to return them to our historical narratives. Thank you for donating. Thanks for listening. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. Yeah.